Hello everyone, Trish Guys here, divorce and pre-mediation coach. Welcome to Shit I Learned from My Divorce, a show where I share with you the good, the bad, and the ugly of what I learned from my divorce. 12 years of trying to live my life while my former partner was trying to destroy it. Trish Guys is not a legal professional, nor a licensed mental health professional. The information she provides is not intended to be legal advice and is intended only for informational and entertainment purposes. Some of the topics on the show may be triggering for some, so please use caution and your own discretion. Topics discussed on the show may not be suitable for young children. I do this show for a couple of very important reasons. The first one being that I feel we need to normalize the behaviors and the craziness that occur during a separation and divorce. It's helpful for both the people going through a divorce and those around them to understand what to expect and how to handle it. Going through a divorce is like nothing else that you will ever experience in life. Number two, I want to prompt you to start thinking about things in a different manner so you don't have to make the same mistakes I did. I also hope to fill some of the knowledge gaps you may have and provide you with some ideas or solutions for what is troubling you at the moment. And most importantly, I would love for you to walk away from each episode just a little bit stronger, feeling a bit more validated and a little more settled because you have a bit of knowledge in your toolkit. So I recommend after listening to each episode, take a few minutes and think about what you've heard. What resonated with you? Do some things seem a bit more clear to you now? Or do you need to do a bit more digging? The whole purpose of my show is to get you to see things perhaps in a different light or for you to slow down or step back a little bit and make sure that you're clear about what you're doing, but more importantly, why you're doing it as opposed to reacting. Okay, with that in mind, let's get on with the show. I feel so blessed to be able to spend some time with you. Us as well. We have lots to talk about. Let's get started. So the name of your company is Leapfrog. Yes. So take us through why a Leapfrog divorce is different than any other divorce. Oh, gosh, I love that question. I will start with the fact that at Leapfrog Divorce, we attempt to do everything right the first time. And we're a firm who has core values. And one of our core values is doing things right the first time, high quality work. And so what I find, especially with clients who come to me after they've been working with another lawyer, is things like, my gosh, you answered my question so thoroughly. I never got this from my other lawyer. Or Mm -hmm. I never got to talk to my other lawyer. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, nobody's ever explained things to me the way you have. Or I'm so impressed with how quickly you turned around those documents. My gosh, my other lawyer took two or three weeks. And so having worked for other law firms, I I, I saw intimately how they worked and the things that worked well and the things that didn't work well. And so I really wanted to start Leapfrog Divorce with the idea of this is a better place. We do divorce better by getting things done right the first time so that people don't have to spend money and time and emotional energy rehashing the same things or redoing the same things. Other things that make us different, each client gets a legal team. So that's a lawyer and multiple paralegals. So every time they call, if somebody is available, they're going to be able to talk to somebody. Whereas in a lot of law firms, it's you call, you get the receptionist, the receptionist says, I'm sorry, nobody's available. Can I take a message? 
Well, nine times out of 10, there's always going to be somebody available to talk to our clients. And I know, you know, if I was one of my clients and I was going through the second most stressful life event I've ever experienced and I get on the phone, I want to talk to somebody. I've got something going on that's important, or I, at least I think it's important to talk to somebody. And so we, we try as best we can to make sure that somebody's always available to communicate with our clients. The other thing we do different from, from other law firms is we put out a ton of educational information for free. You know, YouTubes, these, these podcasts. I love to be an educator. I love to help people understand the intricacies and even the basics about divorce law in Florida. So I'm not afraid to put it out there. I'm not afraid to educate people. You know, for those who want to have a, a do-it-yourself divorce where they represent themselves, I've got a ton of information out there that might be very helpful for them. And, and I, don't, I don't make a dime off of any of that, <laughs> but I feel really good about uh, sharing information, free information with people. So that's another thing that makes us different. Another one is we're an all-virtual law firm. So none of our clients ever have to get in their car. They never have to pay tolls. They mm -hmm. never have to pay for gas or the time to, to take off of work to come to our office. We're all virtual. And so we've implemented the, the systems and the technologies to be able to efficiently deliver legal services in a virtual environment. And and so many of my uh, my colleagues, you know, they, they, they find out about me or what I'm doing and they say, oh, my gosh. How can you do that? I didn't even think that was possible, you know, and so I, I love that. I love uh, being innovative. I love yes. doing new things and kind of breaking the mold and, and delivering more efficient, more, more cost effective divorce services for people. So those are just some of the ways we're different. Honestly, everyone, I think you should just take a moment of silence just to kind of soak all that in. And lawyers, if you're listening, please, I hope you're taking notes. You said so much there that just it almost gives me goosebumps and I'm not even trying to be dramatic, but so many, actually every client I've spoken to has said virtually the same thing you're talking about that you do the opposite of. And it makes people think that that's just what lawyers do and that's how the system works. And I feel maybe some lawyers do feel that that is just how it works, but you've proven that that doesn't have to be that way. The efficiency is just so because you're so right people going through the second most stressful thing they'll ever go through and they're having to make these major life decisions and they need to talk to someone and there's nobody there and then three weeks go by even myself i had found i'd have to call and call and call and the onus is always on you and and it kind of makes you wonder whose side is this lawyer on and you know i've even heard clients being told that well I can't deal with you right now because I had to put things on hold to deal with your case this week. I have others that I have to deal with. And that very well may be the case, but you don't tell people that. Like, it sounds like <laughs> to you, right? Like to you, you, you know, you have your job, you're, you do your lawyering, but that you're cognizant of there's a person on the other end of it. And I think we've lost that somewhere in the field. You know, I know law gets a bad rap, but I think we need to come back to why you're doing this in the first place. And it sounds like you're doing this. You love to educate and you're right, you don't make a dime off of that. But what, what seems to drive you is the education part. And that's maybe not for everybody, but we need to go back to that. And I can I can just see my listeners now thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, he's in Florida. Where's that somebody here where I am? I need somebody like that. And I, I, I kudos to you for doing this and to show everybody that can be done. And I hope it starts a big brigade of people trying trying it their, your way as well. Oh, that would be amazing. 
<laughs> wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? So you must then involve yourself in a lot of collaborative divorce and believe in collaborative divorce. Do you? So can you can you tell us what what that really means? I know people get really confused with all the legal terms and they don't know. I think everyone knows, I think, what collaborative itself means. But what does a collaborative divorce look like? What does it look like for the client, the lawyer? And and take us through, too, is it appropriate in every case? Okay, I'll start with that question. Is it appropriate in every case? I would say no. There are definitely some circumstances where I don't think collaborative divorce is appropriate. One that I can think of right off the top of my head is when there is a significant power imbalance in a couple's relationship. And that could be due to a myriad of factors. It could be due to domestic violence. It could be due to possibly a narcissistic personality. Uh, you know, in the husband or the wife where where they need to maintain control over everything and and their word is the only word that has value, that that's not going to work in a collaborative process. So now that I've said that, let me talk mm-hmm. about what collaborative divorce is and what it looks like uh, here in Florida. So collaborative divorce is not new. It's been around since the 90s, and it's it's an alternative way to get divorced for people who... Uh, want to minimize harm and trauma to each other, to their children, to, I would even extend it out to their extended family, to their coworkers, to their friends, because when people get divorced, all those other people can get involved. They can get dragged in or, or they insert themselves, right? And so this is a way to minimize harm, I would say, to our, our larger global community. That's how, that's how big and how important collaborative divorce is to me. So for those people who want uh, an alternative to the, what I would call the traditional litigated court battle divorce, where you, 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 you drive to a courthouse, you park, you ride an elevator, uh, you <laughs> get up to a, a, this, this very intimidating courtroom, yes. and you're going to be in front of this judge who's in black robes sitting up high above everybody mm-hmm. who doesn't know you from, from a hole in the wall. Um, you know, if you don't want that, then collaborative divorce may be an awesome, awesome process. So basically what it looks like is two people uh, need to agree to enter into a collaborative divorce process. And so they sign an agreement basically stating that this is what they want to do. They also sign what I would call a kind of a behavior contract, if you will, where they agree to be civil with each other. They agree not to do things that we see in, in some traditional divorces like withdraw money from a joint account and put it into some hidden unknown separate account and trying to starve out that that other spouse that that doesn't happen in collaborative divorce and people agree not to do that they also agree not to uh not to threaten each other so it's mm. it's kind of 180 degrees different from from many of the things that we see in a in a traditional court battle divorce process. So once they've agreed, once they've signed these agreements, then what the two collaborative divorce lawyers will do is they will talk and they will talk about these people that they're representing as people, as Mm -hmm. human beings. What is your client like? What's their personality like? Are they quiet? Are they shy? Are they aggressive? Are they outspoken? So that we can work together to pick the other members of their collaborative team which is a neutral financial professional and a neutral mental health professional. Mm -hmm. 
And so we really want to pick a team that is tailor-made or custom designed for these two people as human beings, because it, it just won't work as well if we have two people who are very quiet and we bring in a, a very extroverted, boisterous uh, mental health professional or financial right. professional. There's going to be some friction there that, that we can eliminate by, by picking a, a solid professional team. Now, that mental health professional who's neutral is, is what I would call the the conductor of the orchestra or or the person who steers the ship. They're kind of the sure. communication coordinator or facilitator. So they help keep us on track. And, and when I say us, I mean everybody. Sometimes the collaborative divorce lawyers will get off track. <laughs> Sometimes the clients will get off track. Sometimes the financial professional will get off track. And so, so they're there to bring in the reins, minimize the heat if the heat start, starts mm-hmm. to get too too much. Helping people to communicate in a way that brings about good resolutions as Mm -hmm. opposed to allowing people to talk in a way that that shame or harm other people. And the neutral financial professional is there to help uh, each each person, each spouse understand what is their current financial picture? What kind of debts do they have? What kind of assets do they have? It, it's fully transparent. There, there's no mm-hmm. hiding of assets. There's no, you know, going out and, and incurring uh, a debt. Like I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy a Ferrari and I'm going to call it a marital, mm. marital debt. Yeah. You know, there, there, there's, there, there's none of that. And so for, for those clients whom I've worked with who may have been in a relationship where, you know, they say, I don't know what we have. You know, my spouse handled all of the finances. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even know what his or her income is. I don't know if we have any stocks. I don't know what our credit card debt is. I, I really don't know. So for those, for those, for people like that in that type of situation, the financial neutral is really a blessing because uh, the good ones will draw a picture, if you will, mm. of what their financial picture looks like. Some of them will put Excel spreadsheets up on a big screen and they'll walk through. Mm-hmm. Others will use graphs or pie charts or or what have you. And 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 those types of financials that that I say cater towards the learning of the clients, right? Do we have yes. a visual learner? Do we have an auditory learner? Which which one are they? And they can tailor their presentation on the financials to those people. It's just it's worlds apart from those wow. financials that don't that don't take that into account. So so in a collaborative divorce, the spouses have this team of people. They've got their collaborative divorce lawyers, they've got the mental health uh, neutral, they've got the financial professional neutral. And so during the collaborative divorce, there's a series of meetings. Uh, what we call full team meetings, where the entire team gets together in a, a very non-threatening place. It could be somebody's conference room, uh, maybe one of the lawyers, maybe the mental health, maybe the financial, someplace that's safe for everybody, mm-hmm. where everybody feels feels safe. And we 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 put together those meetings based upon everybody's schedule. So as opposed to a, a court battle divorce. Where we're tied to the court's calendar and the court's availability. Yeah. Oh, you can't get in front of the judge for the next six months. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's really none of that. And so it's it's a lot more flexible. And I have found for clients that I've worked with who travel a lot for their careers, 
they can schedule better. They can mm-hmm. be more involved in the process as opposed to, you know, I just got back from a month-long trip to uh, Thailand. I'm jet-logged, and now I have to appear in front of the judge at 9 a.m. And because that was the only date the court had, you know, all of that, all of that is avoided. And so, so what I have found in the collaborative divorce process is it's it's much more of a of an informal negotiation process where everybody's voice has value. Nobody mm. is shamed. Nobody is pointing fingers too much or or making unfounded accusations. You know, those those types of things don't don't advance a conflict towards resolution. Yeah. And so we coach the clients on more effective communication, how to talk about something really difficult in a meeting where you're sitting next to your spouse that may be difficult for your spouse to hear, but communicating it in a way that they will better receive it, mm-hmm. where they won't feel shamed, where they won't feel threatened. And so really it's more of a holistic process. It's more of a transformative process for people because they can take a lot of things that they learn in the collaborative divorce process outside. You know, all these communication skills that they learn, they can take to their workplace. They can take to their their extended family, to their friends. And so I think it's just a beautiful thing. It really is. You know, as you're sitting talking about it and, and the way you articulate it is so different than what I normally see. And I just think even in cases where there is a power imbalance, you know, it'd be lovely if if every single case started off this way, where we had all the players, including the lawyers and everybody buying into it and everybody taking ownership of making sure we're not trying to re-traumatize or inadvertently re-traumatizing, because that is something that I see every day. And just talking about it, just knowing, just getting an email is traumatizing, right? Mm-hmm. To get that pit in your stomach, but you're so right, the way you describe how we have to walk into the courtroom and the balance of power is inherent there with the person in the black robe sitting high, you know, looking down upon us and that the acrimony between the sides as opposed to coming together mutually to find a resolution. And I know some people think, oh, that sounds lovely. But in essence, that's what we're all trying to do. Even in court, you're trying to find a resolution. And I just think it's more humane and it focuses the attention of all the parties on what's important as opposed to he said, she said, you did, I did. And what I love about that, too, is the financial aspect. There are people in sometimes the the, the mom, sometimes the dad, that isn't quite well versed in their finances. And I know a lot of people have, particularly towards women, been inadvertently shaming and saying, you know, especially if you're a stay-at-home mom, you know, don't give up your financial autonomy. And I really take issue with that because I know I was a stay-at-home mom for a while and I had two little ones under three, and you can't do it all. And there is an inherent trust factor that you have in that other spouse. And so what that person needs is exactly what you described, having a neutral financial advisor who comes in and sees the numbers for what they are, not for who is owed what or anything, but depicts it in such a way that the end users, the people can understand. I love that because so often I think we forget as professionals who we're talking to and they're not cookie cutter and just as we want the parties to hear the other person's message, we want them to hear our message too. And I, I'm I'm storing that in my brain too for when I work with clients in terms of doing a better job of determining what kind of learner they are and that kind of thing, because it's something we forget as adults and it's no different than when we were kids. And I, I love that. That's so astute. 
I think because people get quite afraid about the financials because they're afraid of, oh my God, am I going to be homeless? How am I going to afford things? And just having the way that you've described it, having it done that way, I myself could see myself just ratcheting down the stress level and just feeling like, okay, I understand. This is just numbers and somehow detaching emotion away from it. And I think it's, it's beautifully done and something that even in parties or, you know, like I said, where there's a lot of strife or there's a power imbalance, I think we as professionals, if we can try and uh, focus more on that collaborative aspect, so as not, so we're not exacerbating it. I think that's right. a great idea. So well done. But you mentioned the, the, the negotiating. You mentioned, I think it was on your website too, the negotiating with confidence. And that just hit me. And I wanted to talk about that. What does that look like? And, and take us through what what that entails. Okay. So negotiating with confidence to me means doing a lot of preparation before you ever enter into a negotiation. And what that preparation entails is many things that I, I, I don't think people really think about, but I think about it. So it's things like, who's on the other side? What are they like? What's their reputation? Do they have any time constraints? And this could go for the lawyer on the other side. This could go for the client on the other side. Oftentimes it goes for both, to both for me. And so I'm thinking about those things. And I'm also thinking about if my client or I am going to communicate a position or a, a demand, what do I have to support that demand? What case law, if you will, what other decisions have been made that I could use to help support that what my client or what I'm asking for is reasonable and is likely to be awarded if we go to a trial? And so it, it's walking in, having done all your homework, all your research, knowing what the hot buttons are of everybody in the room, knowing how to present a person's perspective or position in a way, and I, I mentioned this earlier, that will be better received by mm -hmm. the person on the opposite side of that negotiation table. A lot of it is psychology. And so learning a little bit about, about how human beings make decisions, especially when they're in conflict, learning about, you know, when, when the tensions start to rise in the negotiation room and the temperature starts to heat up, what can you do? What do you have in your tool belt? How do you engender trust from the person on the other side of that table? How do you reach out to them with sincerity? I'm asking because I really want to know. I really want to know what your perspective is. And how is that going to help you in the negotiation? So it goes back to preparation, learning something about human psychology, and walking in knowing that you have prepared as fully as you can. You know that what you're asking for is not unreasonable. It might be on the upper end of reasonable, very close to unreasonable. Or if you're on an opposite side, it may be at the very low end of reasonable or unreasonable, but it's still, you've got some reason to justify it. And so that's walking into a negotiation with confidence. And really, it has all to do with preparation. Okay. Now, how once you've prepared and now you're in the negotiation, and let's say the opposing party, your, your ex-partner, has thrown out a proposal that is just so outlandish. 
and seems nonsensical. And of course, a person's natural tendency would be to say, are you nuts? I don't want to do that. I'm not going to give you that, whatever. What's a better way of, of handling that? Because invariably, everybody finds himself in that situation at some time or other. Wow. So there's a lot of options. One option in my tool belt is to laugh. <laughs> Just laugh and, and look at the person and say, now, how can you expect my client to do that? Right. Yeah. And then just just leave it as silence. Don't say another word and ask them to provide some type of of reasonableness, some type of justification. And they may say something like it's fair. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so fair. yes, the, the <laughs> fair word, every oh boy. Some people like the fair word. Some people hate the fair word. Yeah. But that's another tool in my tool belt. I could respond instead of laughing and say, Okay, well, well, thank you for sharing that with us. Help me understand from your perspective how you think this is fair. Mm-hmm. Right? Especially for somebody who's come in to a negotiation or a mediation and said, look, all we want is what's fair. Yeah. Right? They've already put <laughs> themselves out there. And so by just asking them, help me understand how this is fair. It's not asking them to do anything that they've that they haven't already stated they wanted. So that right. that's another option. Another option is to use time on our side. So the way that might look is this is very interesting. I think I'm going to need some time to review this and give this some serious concern with my client. So can we take a break for a uh, half an hour or so while I talk with my client? This works really well if I if I know that the the person on the other side of the negotiation table has a time constraint or they're really interested in getting this done now. They've got some kind of time pressure. It could be that they've got a They've got another meeting to go to. They've got to they've got to fly out for a business trip uh, or, or, or what have you. So I can use time on my side. So that that's in my tool belt. I think those are great. Uh, you know, I, I like them all because they do not give up power or autonomy, but they also still move you towards resolution and trying to find out what's driving the other side. But what I really love about it is putting the onus where it belongs, because so often we find ourselves responding, but then when we don't like that proposal, we're trying to push our proposal and push our agenda or trying to prove our point. When in actuality, if we don't agree with that, they should be telling us what's the rationale for that. And I love that. And I have to keep reminding my clients of that too, because we're so, especially when there's a power imbalance, we're so used to justifying our position or trying to prove to the other person their position's wrong when actually they should be giving the rationale. So that's brilliant. But what if you're doing all that in mediation. I get this question a lot because I work with a lot of people who mediation may or may, may not be appropriate for. And so a lot of people I find are getting a bit jaded with mediation in the sense that, look, we're not cooperating now. It's not giving me full disclosure. How is mediation going to work? Or I hear a lot, too, that we've gone through mediation and it was a waste of time, a waste of time and money. I don't have an agreement. What the heck did I do it for? What's your thought on that? Okay, so I am a firm believer in mediation, and I will talk about where I find mediation goes wrong and where it's not as effective. I had a recent mediation where the other side came to the mediation, I would say, in my opinion, almost completely unprepared. Settlement proposals had been presented months in advance of the mediation. And the opposing side had not looked at them, 
had not considered them and used the mediator's time and everybody's time to read the documents line by line by line. And three hours later, we got a counterproposal uh, with some some additions to the documents and some subtractions from the documents. And I thought, this is a complete waste of time. This is not what mediation is supposed to be. Mediation is supposed to be a time for the parties to come together, having thought about their, their situation, had a, having thought about the facts on their case, having thought about the facts on the other side's case, having thought about the law and and what that might mean to a judge, how a judge might uh, see the facts and see the law. And so we come to mediation having done our preparation and we can have an effective discussion about what matters to these people, what their goals are, what their interests are, and their respective positions, the merits, the downsides. We can rely on the mediator to help maybe obtain some information that we'd really like to know. Like, for example, one of the things I love to use mediators for is to get underneath the surface of what somebody says they want. For example, if um, there's a wife on on the other side of the, the mediation table and she says, I want the house and my client The husband, let's say, doesn't know why she wants the house. I don't know why she wants the house. I might say to the mediator, could you go spend some time with a wife and dig underneath the surface and find out what's important to her about the house? Is it the memories? Is it the geographic location? Is it maybe the fact that her her father, who's now deceased, gave them the down payment for the house? And that means a lot to her. So I will use it as an information gathering exercise, because if I can walk away with my client having more information, useful information than we had prior to the mediation, to me, that's a successful mediation, even if it doesn't resolve. But again, you know, it all goes back to preparation. And that's where I think mediations fail. And for me, in my experience, that's the rare case. Most of my colleagues come in prepared it's a rare case when somebody just comes in com- completely unprepared, and, and that's when I think it's a waste of time. Right, right. But I do agree with you on the information gathering, and I, you know, I do talk to clients about that now too. That just because, unless there's an absolute, like there's an abuse situation, then I probably would suggest no mediation. But in cases even when you're not getting along, that doesn't necessarily mean it's it's going to be a, a futile effort. That it is a great opportunity to find out the motivations of the other individual with other parties involved because when you try to do it just the two of you I find you know because I've, I've sat with some clients the couple and they end up not talking about what the issue really is right mm-hmm. it's the rehashing and the and the yeah but you and it's all that emotional stuff so in a room where you have other professionals that can keep you on track and I love that that you use a mediator for other purposes because I don't know I you know I haven't really delved into it with a lot of mediators but from my knowledge I don't think a lot of them do that. And I think what a great way of helping the room and knowing their audience too. And, and even in terms of how they learn and how, what their, what the story is. And I think it's so hard. I know there's this premise that with law and lawyers and judges, they don't want to hear the story. They just want the facts. And I feel like we've gone too far that way. It's really hard to judge the facts without the context. Right. And I think that's what you, it sounds like you're getting at is that in every aspect of what you do for your clients is, to create context, because also that does help with the validation 
so often again I hear and I experienced it myself many years ago where everywhere you turn there is no validation and we don't need validation to say yes I believe you to for us to believe it but it's a constant feeling of dismissal and I think yes. you know how you're describing it is not in fact it's I understand and I hear you and this is how we're going to work with it as opposed to just ugh, let's just deal with the the facts you know right. and I I think that's something that really I, I I think professionals need to understand but also clients too that you need to advocate for yourself for that. And if not, if you're not getting that, then perhaps you need to find another professional elsewhere because it can be done. You're telling me from what you're describing and it resonates with me because it can be done. That's not the nature of the profession. If you are a lawyer, you don't have to be that way. It can be a choice. Right. I, yes, and absolutely. I, I think it's so important. So important. So if we can just keep focus on the, the mediation part for a second. And I find that People have difficulty with apologies, and I know you talk about this mm. in on your website too. And what I thought was interesting is apology in business. And I thought, wow, back to what you said earlier is that a lot of these communication skills you're talking about can be used everywhere in your life. And so I want yes. to talk a little bit about that, about apology in business, and, and what should apologies look like? Ah, okay. I'll start with that one. So it, it's unfortunate that I think most of us go through our our, our life experience and our education never having been taught or never been exposed to what a good apology looks like. We, we seem to absorb our approach to apology from what we hear. And what we typically hear is not a good apology. And so I'll, I'll just give some quick examples. A, a not good apology is something like, well, gosh, I'm sorry if I said something that offended you. <laughs> Not a good apology, right? Yes. Or, or something like, okay, God, I'm sorry. You know that? <laughs> no, that's not a good apology. So, what does a good apology look like? Well, number one, it has to be sincere, because most people have really good uh, sincerity radars, if you will, <laughs> and we can pick up on somebody who's sincere versus insincere. So it has to be sincere. And it starts with admitting and taking or acknowledging and taking responsibility that I did something that caused uh, harm or injury to this other person. I know what I did. And I am sorry for doing that. So that part might look something like this. I want to apologize to you for what I said yesterday. What I remember saying yesterday was that you don't have the brain capacity to understand what it is I was trying to communicate. And I recognize that that hurts you. That was hurtful what I said. And I am, I am so sorry for saying that because I value our relationship and I promise that I will not say anything like that to you again while we were still in a relationship. So so I went a little bit further than just, you know, acknowledging what I did and that next part that I did was making a commitment to that other person. I'm committed to not letting this happen again, because I've seen how it has damaged our relationship, which which is important to me. So I commit that I will never do that again. Those those two things, acknowledging what it was you did that hurt this other person 
and committing to never doing it again are massive, massive mm-hmm. in an apology. And, you know, do we hear that a lot? No, we don't. Are there examples of good apologies out there? Yeah, you can find them. You can find them in sports. You can find them in business. You might be able to find them in politics. I'm not exactly sure, Uh, but (laughs) they're out there. (laughs) So I think that's so so important. Go ahead. Go ahead. uh, I was was just going to talk about uh, how this might look in, in business. And so, you know, businesses often enter into agreements and contracts with each other, whether it's licensing or something else. And and oftentimes when somebody doesn't do what they're supposed to do, automatically the, you know, the uh, the legal team of that that business or corporation jumps into action and breach of contract. And, and, you know, they, you know, demand letters and this and that when it could have been solved with a simple apology like we are sorry for not delivering on our commitment that we made in our contract. You are absolutely right that we promised mm-hmm. to deliver, you know, XYZ widgets within 20 days and we were late. We are so sorry. We've made some changes to prevent that from happening again. And I'm making a commitment to you today because I value our relationship that that will not happen again. So, you know, that might save a lot of uh, a mm-hmm. lot of conflicts. What a game changer that would be, because I know so often we've all heard the apologies of, you know, even I'm sorry, just I'm sorry and not even in a snarky way. But my question always is, is what are you sorry for? Because mm-hmm. I'm not so convinced that we're on the same page in terms of what the transgression was. And, you know, right. I think that holds a lot of power from what you're saying for the parents out there, because I know uh, I've had discussions with some clients about how important it is to apologize to your children because you are not perfect. No parent is, divorce or otherwise. And you need to be exactly what you're saying. Our children, we, we model things for our children, whether we mean to or not. And we need to model that we make mistakes and it's okay because I, kids have this notion that we're all knowing and that mom and dad know <laughs> everything, right? And so they have no idea. Thank God they think that, right? Otherwise they'd wonder who the heck is taking care of me. But modeling the apology and and I think that goes a long way to telling a kid to teaching them too that adults aren't all-knowing you don't always have to listen to adults they get it wrong sometimes it's okay to speak up and your feelings matter and I think that's so key and to show them how to do it but I love I love most about that is the commitment to do better you may not deliver hopefully you do but that you recognize where you went wrong and that because where we falter a lot is we keep making the same mistake over and over and then that trust is no longer there and that does contribute to divorces that does contribute to you know dissolution of relationships of all kinds and i think that's a step that myself included so many of us have missed uh, we're so sometimes so quick to whitewash everything and i'm so so sorry so sorry but then we don't cognitively think of okay what did i do wrong here and then to to remap your brain essentially to how to do it differently next time a lot of what you're saying to me if i could encapsulate it in a couple of words it's taking accountability it's being deliberate about your actions and your words and putting the onus where it belongs and just being very transparent. And I think for the world, I think that's a very strong, strong message. It has implications for everywhere, like you said, in business, because I think, you know, some people that listen to the podcast, I think too, a lot of this, I want them to understand so much of this is transferable because we don't have separate lives, like our parenting life, our marriage or our our significant other and the workplace, right? right? 
and that's what workplaces are trying to slowly understand too that you cannot separate the worker from the family person you know and you can't just right. say well we're a family here no 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 they have their family but you need to understand that sometimes kids get sick or the dog dies or something happens you cannot treat them like a robot and right. so it's very valuable for for the businesses to understand too bosses in particular that it does not take away your power or your authority or anything like that in fact i think it's more empowering it sounds like i i agree with you wholeheartedly you know so so many people have the impression that uh, apologizing is admitting fault and it's showing weakness. And as you know, particularly as men, we're not supposed to show weakness. We're supposed to show strength. But I agree with you. Having the courage to, to stand in front of somebody and acknowledge that what you did was wrong and that you and that your actions hurt or harmed that person in some way and then making an open commitment not to do it again. That to me shows way more strength than delivering a bad apology or not apologizing at all. 100%. Exactly. Well, we're about to wrap up, but I want to ask you if there's anything else in that big wealth of wisdom that you have. I know when we spoke earlier, we had pages and pages of notes, anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share, because I definitely want to have you back on. So will there be another opportunity, but anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up for today? Certainly. So there's a there's a, a book that I love that's out there, and it's uh, written by the Harvard Negotiation Project. It's called Difficult Conversations. I mm. highly recommend this book for everybody. The reason I love it so much is because it will give people an understanding and a roadmap, a practical roadmap on how to have difficult conversations with other people, whether that be at work about wanting a promotion or a raise or whether it's with a family member or in the middle of a divorce or or with a, an, an elderly uh, family member or a neighbor. It works for everybody. I love that book. I wish it was required reading in, yes. in elementary or high school or college. And so if, if, if somebody wanted just one single benefit from this particular podcast, I would say, go buy that book. It's short, it's an easy hmm. read, and it's inexpensive. And what's it called again? It's called Difficult Conversations. Love it. Love it. Yes. Well, once again, thank you so much for coming. And we're left with so much information to think about, not just in our divorce, but in life itself. And if you're willing, I'd love to have you back on. I already have a bunch of ideas and other things that we can talk about. So we'll talk about that offline. And it was just really a pleasure talking with you. And thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you, Trish. I loved being able to spend some time with you today. Definitely a pleasure. Shit I Learned from My Divorce is written by me, Trish Guys, and produced by Barry Guys. Audio editing and sound design is by Barry Guys. I would love to have you tell a friend or a family member about this podcast, and you can help me share the important concepts I cover by leaving a rating and review of Shit I Learned from My Divorce on Google Podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To stay up to date on the latest from me or to contact me, visit my website, trishguise.com. That's T-R-I-S-H-G-U-I-S-E. You can also find me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Trish Guys, and on Facebook and Instagram at Trish Guys Divorce Coach. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. This has been Shit I Learned from My Divorce with me, Trish Guys, Divorce and Pre-Mediation Coach. Until next time, be good to yourself and to your kids.